0: Richard was working in Brazil all his life. He had this romantic notion of photographing natives living in the Amazonian basin, but you need a permit to go bother those people. And he couldn't get one. Finally, Richard decided he was going anyway. He found out the Brazilian government has a really, really good reason. They say stay away from natives welcome to snap judgment yeah, yeah. Yeah. what is snap judgment yeah. it's that left, that right jump yeah. or don't snap judgment yeah. storytelling yeah. with a beat yeah. Yeah. stay tuned Welcome to Snap Judgment from NPR and PRX. The show about the decisions people make that change everything. My name is Glenn Washington, and today on the show, today we're searching for something, something we're never going to find. We're searching for something special. We're searching for perfection. And DJ Smooth Grooves, on the ones and twos, I'm going to need a perfect groove. Give me what you got. Uh, Almost. I said perfect. I need a perfect groove. Because where we go, these people need something to fortify themselves. We need something that's going to last in the hot, the wet, the cold, the rain. Where we going? You know that special place across the bend on a distant beach? where all is good and right and clean and the riff raff are not allowed and none of this nonsense is going on? Do you know that place? Utopia. Today, on the Snap Judgment, we're in search of Shangri-La. And what better place to look than that magic land to the south? Brazil. Heads up for those sensitive souls This story does contain some violence. This story was excavated, packaged, polished, and produced by Snap Judgment's own Rebecca Hertz.
1: Richard Felker is a photojournalist on assignment in Brazil. He's been photographing the construction of the Itaipu Dam, where thousands of workers have been pouring concrete
2: 24 hours a
1: day for eight years. He is burnt out on industrialization. What he really wants is to go into the deepest Amazon and photograph the indigenous tribes who don't even have concrete. Richard wants to see the real Amazon. Or at least his idea of the real Amazon. But he can't because the Brazilian government makes sure that there's enough red tape in place to discourage travelers. It would take years to get permission, so Richard doesn't even try. But as luck would have it. He's in Sao Paulo, and he meets this kid at a party.
2: He was raised by this padre, Padre Pedro, out in the middle of Mato Grosso.
1: His name is Joaquim Filio, and he's a Givantius Indian from the lower Amazon.
2: We started to talk, and he said, you know, I have an interesting place that I would like to show you. I want to show you something.
1: He invites Richard to accompany him to his hometown in the Amazon to meet a tribe of Givantius Indians. He doesn't have to wait years for permission from the Brazilian government. Richard can go right now
2: and so we agreed two days we'd leave
1: richard's about to find out why the brazilian government makes it so hard to do what he's about to do but he doesn't know that yet he and joaquim filio take a bus for 36 hours into the amazon jungle
2: it started on paved road then it went to dirt road then it went to really funk dirt roads and then it went to like you know there's Jungle and all this growing over everything, and, and bridges blown out and going over, you know, log bridges and everything. It's just really getting crazy, nauseous and hot, and insects everywhere. And then in the middle of the night, it was probably about four or five in the morning, we were dropped off at an old church, and somebody opens the door, and there's a nun standing there, and she's full blown nun.
1: Joaquim introduces Richard to Padre Pedro.
2: He was an Italian priest who came and had been living in the jungle for 15 years. He was the number one priest, number one man there, the head head honcho.
1: Richard asked Padre Pedro if he can go into the village and take photographs.
2: And so he said, I'll ask, but, you know, there's no promises. He came back, I think it was the following day, and said, uh, no, it's not going to happen.
1: Richard is disappointed and a little annoyed, but he decides to make the best of it.
2: Padre Pedro acted as doctor and negotiator. We cruised around in his Land Rover, and we ended up going to several smaller villages. We went and gave some kids some polio shots, and I got to hold these little screaming babies' legs, and he shot them in the butt. So we hung out for a couple of days, and then one day, somebody comes in from the tribe and said, you can go.
1: And not only is Richard allowed to visit the village, he gets to photograph a special ceremony.
2: It was some sort of initiation for kids going into adolescence. They were going to pierce these little boys' ears.
1: But before they go, Padre Pedro pulls Richard aside.
2: The priest told me, we've been invited, but keep in mind, there's been a lot of problems in the past. So
1: there's one condition.
2: If something starts to get nasty or they start getting worked up about something, we have to leave immediately. And if I say go, we jump and we go. If anything gets weird, we
1: leave. Richard can't help thinking that all these people, the government, Padre Pedro, everybody's overreacting. These are primitive people living in a tiny village. They don't have cars or guns or bombs. What's everyone so worried about?
2: And so I said, fine, let's go, let's do it.
1: So Richard and Padre Pedro leave the mission at five in the morning.
2: So we drove out there, and I heard something off in the background. It was like screaming and yelling, and I thought, wow, what is going on? So it was like the beginnings of this thing.
1: Richard is finally in a real, givantious, Amazonian Indian village. And it's everything he hoped it would be.
2: The village was just you know, thatched huts, really awesome, these round thatched huts that were just huge. And you could see the fires kind of burning and the smoke in the background, you know, and just kind of people, it was twilight, so it was just like this really surreal time to be there. <coughs> and the women are over in their end and they're standing around with these like like wraps on and, and Western bras, you know, I'm like, this is really, you know, these white bras on, <laughs> you know? You see these, these shadow figures walking around, and I'm like, I don't even know really what I'm looking at here, it's still twilight, I see these fires burning, and these guys invite me. They flag me over to go into this room, and I'm like, uh, okay. So I went in there, and I'm in the guy's tent, you know, hanging out with these guys.
3: ¶¶
2: I'm looking at these people, and they're huge. These guys were just completely chiseled. Huge packs, massive thigh muscles, and I'm like, wow, where do they, But it's like an, out of control. Oh, and they were patting this, this ball that was this blood red root, stop sign red, and it was just mixed with oil, and they got it all over their hands, and they're standing like at each other's backs, smearing this blood red stuff on their bodies. Their haircut was just like the bomb of all haircuts. Their voices were very rhythmic, and they were like, ooh. and their language. One word I was taught was, which means very beautiful. I
3: am
2: wow, man, this is totally cool, you know.
1: When the men finish decorating themselves, they leave the hut. Richard follows them out into a clearing.
2: They got into this circle, and they held hands and started dancing. They started to pull their legs out, and then pull their legs in, and this circle would just sort of pulsate in and out. They would thrust their legs in and thrust their legs out and thrust them in and then thrust them out. The circle would expand and then contract. Then the sun was coming out and, you know, all around these roundhouses and the smoke smoldering and then this pulsating going on. You could see their bodies sort of glistening from the sun. It was like, you know, really good photo op.
1: So Richard takes out his two Nikon cameras and 100 rolls of film, and he starts taking pictures.
2: So I was being able to hammer out four frames a second, but I'm just working at it and working at it and shooting these shots. I saw this guy, and I zeroed in on this one guy who was the badass, and he scared the shit out of me. But at the same time, I was so drawn to this guy's face, I just started focusing on his face because it was just so good. And his body, his back, his pecs, he was just this fierce, fierce warrior. And I'm looking at him going, wow, what a photograph.
1: When the men finish dancing, it's time for the jungle race.
2: they put two logs, one on each side of their shoulders, 16 inches in circumference, about maybe two foot long, and they carried these logs on their shoulders and began to run. And In the heat, they're just off and running, and they disappear. And the badass dude was one of those guys, and I thought, well, he must be number one. And then maybe 15, 20 minutes later, here comes. The guy, the sculptured dude in front, covered with sweat, you know, drops his logs and just walks back, and everyone goes, oh, you know, what, you, know what, you know, beautiful dude. <laughs> this cow appears, and this dude walks over with an axe and just hammers it right on the back of its neck, and dead right there, and it pulsating with blood, and then they perceived to start hacking this thing up the legs off of an axe. They had this rack built and this fire, and they start to take the pieces and lay it out. The head was there, and some fur was still on it and everything, and the kids were standing around poking the eyeballs.
1: Now Richard's got two cameras. One has a 20mm lens, and one has a 500mm telephoto lens.
2: I was like really comfortable with this whole vibe. I really liked it, and I was just in my own photographic zone.
1: And Richard starts focusing in on that biggest most chiseled warrior.
2: I mean, he was like a Roman statue, you know, the way his body was chiseled. This guy is just covered with red and just sweaty and oily. And I'm like, wow, this is really cool photographs with the light and this deep, rich color. And so I'm working this image over and over and over again. I keep working on this guy and I just lose myself in these images. I've got this 500 millimeter lens on and all of a sudden I see this guy put his arms up in this sort of locomotion sort of a motion and his arms are as if he's running. And I see this through a 500 millimeter lens and my first perception is this guy is running over to kill me. And I pull the camera back from my face to take a look and I I, I almost fall over backwards and faint and I feel like I'm in you know I'm graying out because I'm scared and I see this guy and he hasn't moved but he's waving his arms and he's got this really crazed look in his eyes and I turn over to the right and I see these women standing over there and they see my face and they can they know instantly I'm petrified and they
1: start laughing
2: hysterically
1: Richard looks around the women are laughing at him and the crowds of children are laughing at him. And the big chiseled warrior is laughing at him.
2: And I don't think it's funny. I was just terrified.
1: And Richard just stares at the warrior.
2: This puppy just happens to walk in front of him. And he kicks this thing in the air. This puppy's flying in the air. It lands on the ground.
1: And the whole place goes quiet. Nobody makes a sound. And the warrior walks over to the puppy lying on the ground.
2: And then he smashes it with his foot.
1: He smashes the puppy with his bare foot.
2: End of story. The puppy is finita de musica. And that's when I instantly lock eyes with the padre. The padre just waves, out of here. Let's go.
1: And Padre Pedro's like, remember when I said it could get weird? This is what I was talking about.
2: And so we hop in this truck and we beeline it.
1: On the way back to the church, Richard is freaked out.
2: And I'm still shaking, and I'm just visualizing that airborne puppy and everything. And so we go to the church, and he wants to show me something. And so he brings out what looks like a yearbook. And in this yearbook are all these black and white pictures of priests. And he points to the one and and he slaps his hand and goes,
0: bow, bow.
2: He points to another one. Bow, muerte. Dead. Bow, muerte. Dead. Dead. Bow, muerte. Dead. These guys are all killed by the Chivanchas Indians. Bow, muerte. Pa, muerte. Pa, muerte.
1: and richard can 't help thinking all this business about tourists not having access to the natives. Maybe the Brazilian government has a point.
0: Our own Rebecca Hertz brought us that story from photographer Richard Falker sure you've constructed images in your mind's eyes to match the tale compare them against the real thing richard falkers mind-blowing photos from this very trip now on snapjudgment.org buckle up our quest for utopia has just begun up next the end of the world snap judgment from npr stay tuned <laughs> Welcome back to Snap Judgment from NPR. I'm your host, Glenn Washington, and today we're looking for utopia. That oh-so-ephemeral, fleeting time and space where perfection is reached and usually lost. This next story looks at a utopia that was quite literally erased from existence because it committed the cardinal sin of not making enough money. Snap Judgment Senior Producer Roman Mars has the story.
4: A few months before the end of the world, Paul Monaco posted this message on YouTube.
5: Hello everyone, Paul Monaco here, Buddha Paul, as most of you know me as, um, you probably all heard the news, Yayland, the Sims Online closing down. The world that was ending was
4: called The Sims Online. It was an online version of the most popular computer game ever made.
5: You've all been wonderful. You've helped me through a hard time in my life when I first got online.
4: But ironically, the online version of The Sims was not very popular. They ended up losing tons of subscribers and changing the name to EA Land, and then they finally pulled the plug.
5: Thank you, and uh, please, let's, let's try to stay in touch. And if not, um good luck with, with um, whatever you choose to do and move on to.
4: As you can probably hear, EA Land was not a normal video game. There were no monsters, no killing, and although it had some competitive elements, for many players, competition wasn't the point at all.
6: Unlike a lot of other games where you might be shooting people or Slaying dragons or something This was a game about socializing
4: That is Robert Ashley
6: And Robert Ashley He produces a very popular internet radio show And the creator of A Life Well Wasted A Life Well Wasted It's about video games and the people who love them And EA Land was a video game that a dedicated few absolutely Loved The crowd that it attracted, I think, were people who just wanted to get together and sort of chat, meet strangers. It was a nice place. Over time, it became a kind of intimate, almost bar, like the cheers of video games.
4: Where everyone knows your name. And at the moment that Paul Monaco, a.k.a. Buddha Paul, found EA Land, it was exactly what he needed most.
5: My wife um, had a a long-term illness. She, um, from a blood transfusion, she had hepatitis C. And the last three years or so of her life were pretty, you know, pretty much a challenge for, well, for both of us. And after she passed away, I, I had absolutely no function other than to wake up, go to work, and, and go to sleep again. With, with her illness, I didn't get out and socialize much. We, you know, we weren't able to you know, go out to the bars and meet up with friends and have dinner. I totally de-socialized myself. And this game was kind of a way for me to just kind of get back into, into living again. Uh, It was, it was pretty amazing. And
4: Paul began to live for EA Land. He would play it for hours and hours. It was the first thing he did when he got home from work.
5: you would treat treated to a big warm greeting. Everyone would, uh, you know, say hi and you, you know, your your IMs would be beeping along and uh, you'd be (laughs) inundated with that. Uh, it, It made you feel really good.
4: It wasn't the real world, but his friends were real friends. And virtual worlds do have an upside.
5: Your race, your color, your religion, all that can be totally masked and you're truly judged on who you really are and how you present yourself. There's no no prejudice, there's no preconceived anything. It's just, you're really taken at face value.
6: People could really like break loose and, and be themselves and have some fun.
5: It just feels really good.
4: Paul's utopia didn't last because EA Land started hemorrhaging money. The writing was on the wall. The server was about to go dark. And this event, this virtual apocalypse, might only exist in the memory of the players if it weren't for Dr. Henry Lowood.
6: I had just stumbled across um, this project by Henry Lowood. Uh, My name is Henry Lowood. Who is this archival researcher at Stanford.
7: And I had a project called How They Got Game which is on the history of digital games and simulations.
6: Saving video games for future generations. You know,
7: 50, 100, 200 years from now. How are we going to save that history? You know, like, we've got to save the video games.
4: So Dr. Lowood and his colleagues preserve what happens inside video games. Now, for a single-player game like Pac-Man, for example, this is easy. You effectively take the Atari cartridge out and you put it on a shelf. But saving multiplayer online games is not so simple. Saving the software alone is kind of a barren exercise. If you saved the code for Yaland and turned it on 100 years from now, you'd enter a world and nothing would be there. All the things that Paul Monaco and his friends loved would be impossible to find.
7: You need to document what people are doing in these spaces. That situation is much more like what a historian or an archivist would do when faced with the problem of
4: documenting the real world. So when Dr. Lowood caught wind of EA Land shutting down, he had the opportunity to record something a historian or archaeologist would die to witness firsthand in the real world.
6: To see what it would be like when an online world came to an end.
7: What happens when a virtual world closes? The end of a culture. What is it like to be there in the last minute and when it shuts down?
4: So the tape is rolling and the last few hours of EA Land are being recorded and the most dedicated diehard users are there exchanging virtual hugs, reminiscing. The players are typing messages which appear like comic book word bubbles. And you hear all these avatars
6: crying and you hear all these coos and moans and the gibberish language of the game called Simlish. And you know, they, they sound like they're going to be bummed and, uh, and everything, but it's not like a big pity party. But then toward the, the end of, of the night, there's this radio station that you could listen to in the game called Charmed Radio. And they had this DJ there Uh, Named spike. He is sort of the only voice that you end up hearing at the end of the world
4: and as soon as he starts talking You understand what is being lost?
8: Hey guys the last time you're gonna hear me speak well the last time before TSI goes down I just want to thank you all um. It's been an amazing experience. It really has and i promise I wouldn't make myself cry, but I can't I can't stress enough how much you guys have meant to me over the past, however many years it's been. Oh, oh. It really has been awesome and uh, some people don't get attached to things, but now when you make when you make friends, all the people in this game, it's actually really hard. So uh, I'm going to play the last song, it's Sarah Brightman and Andrea Bocelli time to say goodbye (laughs) hopefully you guys will uh, keep in touch my yahoo ID is (laughs) 12345 DY. 12345 good luck in life everybody and uh, best wishes I love you all and uh, it's been great knowing you take care guys and uh, let's just I just wanna even if you haven't got a drink, just propose a toast to Parazet who's been absolutely amazing. Parazad, we couldn't have done this without you. Thank you.
7: You get this feeling like being on the deck of the Titanic.
5: Yeah, anyone who actually stayed to the end was very much invested in the game on an emotional level.
4: When they pulled the plug on the server, bits and pieces of the world started disappearing. The environment began to disintegrate. The texture on the trees flickered and all the people froze and blinked out of existence.
7: The actual ending was, was uh, you know, not with a
6: bang, but with a whimper. And the last thing that they saw was basically just an error message, a server disconnect message.
4: And then... Ended.
0: That piece by Roman Mars was adapted from a story by Robert Ashley from his amazing internet radio show called A Life Well Wasted.
3: Life in a Utopian World. What would life be like in a utopian world?
9: My name is Sam Green. I'm the director of Utopia and Four Movements. Utopia is a word with a lot of definitions. People make different things out of it. Most of the time, people say, oh, utopian communities, the Oneida settlement, or the Shakers, you know? And to tell you the truth, that's not actually super interesting to me. Most of those utopian communities, follow the same depressing script. People get together, they have this great communal experience, and then a charismatic leader sleeps with everybody and it falls apart. I'm much more interested in a more expansive definition of it, the impulse to make a radically different and radically better world, not just to go off and make a little perfect world for yourself.
4: I'm realizing as you're talking that a lot of the stories that we've collected are really about personal utopias, that they've given up on the world, uh-huh. they have idealized some yeah. thing, and have decided to sequester themselves, and yeah. even those
9: usually fall apart. Right. <laughs> I mean, what is it? Is it just inherent? Well, I mean, my own feeling about utopia is that it, and this is just personal, that it's fleeting. Thomas More's use of the word utopia, it's actually a play on words coming from Greek roots that mean not and place. It's a place that does not exist.
5: This is the world I want to live in. Now this world's not
0: going to happen easily. This is Snap Judgment from NPR. I'm Glenn Washington, and today we're searching for utopias. I've learned through my travels that for some reason, paradise is never right where you're standing. It's always in the rearview mirror. Or maybe it's right over the horizon. And I don't have to tell all this to Jeff Warren. Jeff knows things. Jeff and his girlfriend are going on vacation, Mexico. And that, of course, is all well and good. But Jeff, Jeff has a different notion of vacation than your neighbors booking their passage on the Carnival Cruise Line.
10: Never spent more than a couple dollars a night. I felt like that was my mission, to sort of just be real. Jeff demands that he experience what the local people
0: experience, that he eat what the local people eat, that he feel what the local people feel. We were seriously roughing it. So lest they be mistaken for those loud, pasty people haggling for trinkets, Jeff led his girlfriend far away from everywhere and everything to an island off the Yucatan Peninsula with a wonderful, secluded, deserted beach. It was beautiful. Nobody around. It was so far off the beaten path, though, that it was missing one crucial thing.
10: We didn't really have a lot of supplies. There wasn't like a market or anything there. We were kind of scrounging ourselves and trying to collect mussels and stuff. See, paradise
0: with no food is no paradise at all.
10: Then they meet. A savior. This uh, young kid came up to us, and we started talking to him, and it turns out that he was sort of subsisting by fishing, and he would give us some of that. He showed them how to hunt for game. I remember standing there with him. We were just talking. He catches something out of the corner of his eye, and he kind of just slyly reaches down and grabs a rock, and he's still talking to me. He doesn't even stop his conversation. And he throws a bullet about 25 feet away at this pile of rocks, and the next thing I know, I see an iguana flying up in the air, like four feet, doing cartwheels after it had been struck in the head, and then land down another meal. The last just
0: shot was not as true as the little boys.
10: Their bellies remained empty. I was get really flipping out. Then, a problem arose on the horizon. One night, we were sitting on this hill and watching the sunset, and... I began to notice these lights getting slightly bigger on the water. First a speck,
0: then a thing, then a monstrosity growing closer, ever closer.
10: I started to realize that it was uh, a tourist boat. They were coming. Right to where I was. As if they owned the place. A
0: bloated, showy tourist boat with the unmitigated gall to unload right down the beach from Camp Almost Paradise.
10: These are the people that I really have wanted nothing to do with on my entire trip. And being a tourist boat, it did what tourist
0: boats do. It threw a tiki party. Hi, baby! Damn them to hell!
10: Suspicious. They stayed on the periphery that night on the outside looking in. But the next night, I sat out again to watch the sunset and sure enough there come the lights again and there's the boat and there's the party on the beach and I started thinking we need to take advantage of this.
0: Hello shawty, you ready to party?
10: We clean up as best we can. Okay. You know, uh, I still had a razor. I think I probably shaved dry and uh, I put on, you know, the best shirt I had and strolled on over to the uh, cruise on, beach baby. party. Hey. On, joyous and joyous this guy in a, in a white jacket comes up to me and I'm thinking, oh God, you know, they're gonna tell us to walk away. He holds out a tray full of drinks and he offers a beer, tequila. They're barbecuing whole barracuda. I mean, I don't know if you've ever had barbecued barracuda. But after sitting on an island, like eating iguana, it's so delicious. So we just stuffed ourselves.
0: They eat their fill and step back, back into the shadows. The days of hunting lizard are fading in
10: their memory already. The next night, we get cleaned up way in advance. We're not worrying about lunch. We're not worrying about dinner. I'm building up an appetite. So, there's the sunset. There's the lights. There's the boat. Here we go. They stroll over.
0: Great cruise. Hey, Jack, how's Cindy? Sure, sure. I'll have a beer. You know, you mix in. You better believe you mix in. One night turns to two, three become four. It's vacation, baby.
10: We would spend the day snorkeling and just relaxing, and there was not a worry in your mind about sort of filling your belly it's Pavlov's dog you know the sun starts to set and you're just drooling ring the bell ding 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 it was a Sunday and we were out running around all day and just working up a really big appetite there's the sunset right on and there was no lights appearing and we thought it must be just a little delayed tonight but the boat never came we sat on that hill for about two and a half hours refusing to believe that the boat wasn't coming and that we had nothing to eat sure it's gonna come it's gonna come right it's gonna come back
0: jeff has to make a choice he's jonesing for that boat But then, he looks at himself. What has he become? What is he? (sighs) A tourist, waiting for his cocktail with a little umbrella sticking out.
10: No. I think at that point, I sort of realized how dependent we were. And so the next day, we packed up and left the island and, and moved on. Keep it real, Jeff.
0: Keep it real. Snap Judgment's favorite dancer, Sarah Jesse, brought that story home for us. Up next, Snap Judgment goes to war with ourselves and everyone else, and it's the end of the world all over again. Again. For real. We got it from up above. We heard the news. This is Snap Judgment from NPR. Stay tuned. Welcome to Snap Judgment from NPR. I'm your host, Glenn Washington. On today's episode, Utopia. Now, for lots of folks, Utopia starts with a secluded island bungalow, maybe some soft, light rock music in the background. But for others, that is their idea of hell. Yet for some, you see, there's no joy without conflict. You know these people. There's a word from an the English language. We like to call them exes. But what if those conflict-driven drama queens you used to date got together and formed their own entity? What would that sound like? Snap Step Judgment's Stephanie Fu does some investigation.
11: David Levine and his friends didn't believe in God or responsibility. They believed in partying, they believed in sinning, and they believed in dressing up in medieval armor and smashing each other in the head with swords. This is their battle cry.
3: Trash Agush! Maureen!
11: Trash Maureen. It translates from Gaelic into fight and kill. Trash One night, drunk and delirious after a four-day bender they were noshing on a platter of moons over Miami, when it suddenly struck them. A revelation. Battles. The wars. That's what it was all about.
0: It's the fighting. Fighting with each other.
11: They realized that the world revolves around dissent. And by analyzing the benefits of it, man could better himself and the universe. By dawn, they crafted a religious philosophy around conflict. They called it Tarantism. Tarantism condoned their shenanigans. Tyler, didn't you personally dislocate David's shoulder?
6: Multiple times. I've dislocated his
5: shoulder about eight times, and I've actually fractured his right forearm as well.
11: They just gave them more conflicts to learn from. Okay, and David, what is the benefit from the result of that conflict?
5: I learned to wear more armor, and to not be where my sword is.
11: They were able to skip all the obligation religion usually involves, the prayer and the guilt, and get right to the good part. Nirvana. Paradise was David's house which was named the Church of Tarantism.
5: In in all honesty, the place looked like a
9: crack house. For a long time, there was a uh, a car parked in the driveway that we were tearing apart. There is the, the lawn was unmowed for months at a time.
8: There's also the fact that
5: most of the time we lived there, there was at least two pit bulls in the yard. Two of the people who lived at the house engaged in technically a feud but that involve the use of firearms on their on each other's beds oh my god with a, with a 45 caliber revolver there were a lot of bullet holes in the beds
11: they named themselves priests they battled their weekly sermons were arguments they felt like they were becoming smarter better happier people it was nothing short of miraculous A group of screw-ups in a dilapidated crack house had found what some searched their whole lives for.
5: As far as um, our lives as Tarantists, yes, it was, I would say, that would be a utopia.
11: They had system priests of functioning theology. And they found out that if they had signatures from several hundred people claiming that they were followers, they could make Tarantism an official government-recognized religion— so they went on a crusade. But they did not convert with knives and bombs. This is the 21st century. They used the internet.
0: Yeah, I
5: just
6: went and found whatever weird sounding kind of message board I could find and posted something up. And I got an overwhelming response at least four or five hundred people. Yeah, it was like,
11: oh yeah, hell yeah.
6: You know, this sounds absolutely awesome. I am definitely one of these.
11: And so the boys preached. They indulged in conflicts of their own making. Duels and debates, they drank, laughed, shot each other's beds, wondered how long it would take for the rest of the world to catch on to how great conflict could be. What they did not do was stress about getting their degrees. They did not spruce up their cover letters. They did not notice the bills that said last notice on them. The world outside of the church existed for debate, but it seemed foreign until one day, it came crashing down on them. John had not paid the rent or any of the bills for several months. A friend managed to step in and buy the house, but he moved in with his wife and new baby. They lost the house. David joined the army. Others went to grad school, got apartments and jobs, found substitutes for the sanctuary of the church. And does it still look like a crack house?
6: Mm-mm. It's like a very pretty family home now.
11: Oh, that's kind of a happy ending. <laughs>
6: kind of.
11: Despite their loss, they are still Tarantists. Maybe more so than ever. They get together daily to talk about different conflicts now. The job market, birth control, empty toner cartridges. These battles are monotonous, harder. And that's what makes triumph so great. Here, along with the rest of us, they must fight.
6: The Terranist Utopia would not be a perfect place. In a perfect place, you know, where where are you going to have that conflict to learn from?
9: My name is Sam Green. I'm the director of Utopia and Four Movements. In 1939, at the World's Fair in New York, a time capsule was buried. It is to be opened in 5,000 years. And it's almost hard to even figure out what that year would be. 6939. They put all this crazy stuff in this huge titanium cylinder, shaving cream in a magazine, a newsreel, there's carrots in there. I don't know why they put carrots in there, but there's this great note. I remember a quote from it. It says, we choose to believe that men will solve the problems of the world, that human beings will overcome their limitations and their adversities, that the future will be glorious. And it's really amazing that in 1939, literally right before the huge storm of World War II, people were so optimistic looking around today. There are very few people, I think, who believe that the world is going to be better. I kind of feel like utopia is almost like a shorthand for hope and the imagination together. You've got hope for the future and you can kind of imagine something better. That's utopia
0: for me. I was nine years old. It was a rental hall in Midland, Michigan, and people were excited for good reason. The Lord's own apostle, Herbert W. Armstrong, had chosen our flock to preach Sabbath services. The rumor was he had big news. No loud talk today, everybody was whispering. And when the lights blinked, people rushed to take their seats with a quickness. Something was going on, something was happening. My mother glowed incandescent with anticipation. Through the glory of our savior, may I introduce God's hand-selected servant, Herbert W. Armstrong. We stood up and clapped. It was against our tradition. We did not clap in church, but we could not help it. We clapped this great man and we clapped ourselves for being there to witness it. Armstrong strode to the pulpit, pumping his fist in holy triumph. Brethren! Brethren! But we were not done applauding louder and louder. Brethren! I greet you in the name of the wonderful world tomorrow. We lost our damn minds, cheering, clapping, hollering, screaming. My mother squeezed my hand and nodded the nod that the chosen reserved for each other. We were God's people. This was God's servant and we were ready for God's revelation. Brethren, thank you. Thank you. Now please, please go on ahead and be seated. Brethren, I come bearing dire news. The end time is a bonus. A chill dance through the room. And brethren, I know some of you out there think that maybe you've heard all this before. Well, I've got a little news for you. Because I don't mean that Jesus is coming later on someday. I mean right now. But before Jesus can return, Satan will be let out of his cage to destroy this world. And that's why the Lord promises right here in his holy Bible to send his flock to a place of safety. But only the righteous, brethren, only the faithful. And here's the bad news. Some of you in this very room are not going to make it. Oh, hell no. They weren't leaving me. I was getting right with the Lord starting today. We got back in the car, trembling. My mother did a brief prayer before putting the key in ignition. We were going to leave all this behind and escape to a place of safety while the world boiled under Satan's torment. I imagined a big spaceship of the Lord where we could look down and see the world aflame in the devil's fire. Elder Bacall said maybe we would go back to the Garden of Eden and that would be sweet. This was gonna be the best camping trip of all time. I was not going to miss it. Ms. Chappelle called my mother and said they were sleeping fully dressed with their shoes on to let the Lord know they were ready. It was good thinking. I kept my own shoes on that night. At school, I started saying goodbye. When my best friend, Danny Walters, asked if I had an extra pencil, I said, Hey, man, it was real great hanging out with you. He looked at me strange. What, are you moving? Yeah. Where? I'm not supposed to talk about it. You guys are so weird. But that sucks. You can still come over after school today though, right? I didn't want to miss any cosmic developments, but I couldn't turn this down. Danny had a pool, and his mom's was always making us some cookies. Yeah, but I can't stay too long. For a while, I forgot about the end time. Mrs. Walter said I was too skinny and made me a meatball sandwich. And then she came correct with the milk and the cookies. We threw coins to the bottom of the pool to see who could get them the fastest. And they asked if I wanted to stay for dinner with the family. But then I remembered it was the end time and I had to be vigilant. And I said, no, thank you, but thank you for everything. If there was anything I could do to change how things were gonna be, I would, but it just wasn't up to me. But Miss Walters, you have always been real good to me. And Mr. Walters always been real good to me. And I know you didn't have to because I was a black kid, but I appreciate it and I really gotta go now. What's wrong with you? He's been acting like that all day. I got on my bike and pedaled. Fast, real fast. Opened the mailbox, and there it was. The gold envelope. I didn't open it. I took it. Carefully, carefully. Up the stairs to our apartment. My mother was washing dishes in the sink wearing yellow rubber gloves. She said hello, and I didn't just placed the envelope down on the kitchen table. She nodded, took off the wet gloves, sat down at the table, and broke Mr. Armstrong's seal. Began to read. She didn't stop me from reading from behind her shoulder. Greetings, brethren. By now, you know the urgency of the hours. The days foretold in the book of Revelation are at hand. To that end, I will soon meet with King Hussein of Jordan about using the caves of Petra as the church's place of safety and refuge during the coming tribulation. Your donations are needed more than ever to keep God's truth alive. Be steadfast and vigilant and know that Satan, Satan stands before the flock in our eternal reward. With love in Christ Jesus, Herbert W. Armstrong. Caves? Caves? What was a Petra? I didn't want to go to no Petra and live in no cave. It wasn't right. And I don't want to leave my friends behind so they could be tormented by Satan either. I looked at my mother. She was still holding the letter as new scripture in her hand. Petra. Jordan. King Hussein. Mama, are we going to Petra? She didn't answer me. Mama. She folded the letter in half. She folded it again. Then she stood up and threw it in the trash. Nah, baby. We're not going to Petra. Now go wash your hands. We're having meatballs for
3: dinner. Yeah. Yeah. Believe it or not, what kept me alive is my dream. I'm a dreamer, but I ain't the only one got
0: problems. Snap Judgment was produced by myself, Glenn Washington. But you can't make a radio show in a hot tub. So I turned to that over producer, Mark Ristich, the god of war and radio, Roman Mars. Too hot, too cold, too high, too short. Better get you some Rebecca Megahertz. Ben, DJ, Smooth Drews, Picasso, Stephanie Foo, Sarah Jesse, Rita Daniels, Will Urbina, and Christian Pollock. Now, if you see the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, kiss them full on the mouth. A little saliva is fine. They don't mind that. Snapjudgment.org, powered by those mad genocide at MediaCanon. PRX, making public radio more public. And even though. You could shrink yourself to microscopic levels, be ingested by a porpoise, expelled into a batch of peat moss, and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. This is NPR.